Quaker podcast where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, May 27th, 2013. My name is Ben Stone and this is podcast number 319. And with me today is George Donnelly. Actually, I interviewed him over the weekend. So uh, I'll just play that interview and here we go with George Donnelly. With me today on the podcast is someone that Mark Edge from Free Talk Live called a national level super activist. And uh, Kevin Carson from the Center for a Stateless Society said uh, that he's one of the most energetic and principled activists for individual liberty. Um, that's quite a bit coming from Kevin Carson. Also, um, Whoopi, Col- Whoopi Goldberg called our guest today a terrorist. George Donnelly, welcome back to the Bad Quaker Podcast. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you, Ben. It's really my pleasure to be here. Wow, it's you know it's strange. I'm not going to go into details unless you specifically want to, but it sounds like you know the amazing uh, amaze amazements of the internet. It sounds like you're right next door. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess I have uh, decent bandwidth today. But I'm in yeah, I'm in South America. I'm in the northern part of South America. And uh, if you're not familiar with George's work, get over to georgedonnelly.com. That's G-E-O-R-G-E-D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y.com. And uh, George also has a podcast called called The Art of Liberty Podcast. And one Mm -hmm. of the main reasons I'm having George on the show today is to talk about a service that George offers called Shield Mutual. And right now, we're all kind of giddy with victory because of what George has done with uh, with Shield Mutual. And and not just George. I mean, there's there's an army of people that just uh, accomplished an amazing task. George, thank you for, literally, thank you for your service, and thank you for doing what you do. Tell us about Shield Mutual. Well, thank you, Ben. Um, Shield Mutual is the Agora's first defense agency. As those of us who are familiar with uh, Agorism and Murray Rothbard, Konkin's work, uh, know Agorism is the idea that we're going to trade our way to a free society, to a stateless society. And on that road, we're going to need defense agencies to protect us from the state. And, uh, you know, we're not at this stage, and it's not compatible really with my philosophy um, to be using bullets and guns. So what I use is uh, leadership, public relations, um, negotiation, communications, to defend people, my customers, the best that I can from government aggression. And that's what Shield Mutual is. It's just uh, $50 a year. And uh, you get as much coverage as, as I can give you. You know, everything that I can do for you, I will do. And you guys did a, a tremendous job with Adam Kokesh's uh, uh, recent kidnapping and uh, imprisonment. Um, you know, uh, the whole mechanism just kicked into, into gear. And, uh, you know, and I should mention Eddie Free, the tremendous work that he did. And a whole, and a, you know, like a, just like I said, a whole army of people, each one doing something. Uh, phone calls, I mean, it was, uh, it was amazing to watch it all happen. It really was. There was uh, an ad hoc alliance that uh, formed around this. Um, you know, I, I played my part as, uh, you know, Shield Adam is our customer. And so I played my part uh, from Shield Mutual to do what I could to defend Adam. I um, issued press releases to, uh, you know, mainstream and local and Pennsylvania libertarian media. I uh, organized a call flood for Monday. I set up uh, the freeadam.net website where more than 28,000 unique uh, visitors came to be informed about what was going on with Adam just over the last six days. Uh, you know, I researched legal representation options. I negotiated a two-for-one deal with for Adam and Poe with the uh, top civil rights attorney in Philadelphia. And uh, just a ton, a ton of other stuff. And I'm, I might just uh, add a, a little disclaimer here. 
you know, Adam Kokesh is a very controversial figure and there are people that love him and there are people that hate him and there are people who don't care one way or the other and there are people who don't know he exists. But you're you're not necessarily advocating or you're not necessarily, uh, you know, agreeing with all things uh, Adam Kokesh. You are providing a service for people in the liberty movement to uh, to be able to have something, someone they can speak for them at times when uh, when nobody else is speaking for them, right? That's right, yes. When our customers are the victims of government aggression, uh, we use public relations to defend them however we can in an aggressive way, as well as organizing uh, whatever legal representation options we can come up with, fundraising. For example, we raised more than $6,000 for Adam's legal defense in uh, 11 hours flat. Wow. Um, you know, we do whatever, whatever it takes. Of course, I, you know, I'm tooting my own horn a little bit here, but uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that completely because there were, like I said, there's a whole alliance of people here that uh, came forward, stepped forward to support Adam. And what's more, Adam, of course, has a very high profile. So, um, you know, th- this was a ch- this was very challenging for me. I worked six days, twelve hours a day on this. And I, you know, I coordinated with his business team and, uh, you know, I worked very closely with them and I, I was in contact with his parents and a whole range of people. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to downplay my role. I mean, I definitely helped because um, I have to toot my own horn as an agorist businessman. But there, you know, it, Adam's notoriety and, of course, all the people that came out to support Adam, um, you know, we all played a critical role. And, and and that is uh, like you're saying that is being honestly humble, and yet uh, you know honestly um, providing some little advertisement here for your uh, for Shield Mutual at the same time. I mean, it's, it's realistic that you you need to let people know that for fifty dollars a year. I mean, think about that. You know the the amount that tiny investment, and think of the return back on that that Adam got. Uh, that, that's just amazing. Well, yes, and now uh, we've already gone through two evolutions of the surface service, and uh, right in the middle of uh, working on the third evolution is when uh, Adam was arrested. And we have a whole schedule of benefits and a long-term strategy for how people, the whole community is going to benefit from this. Just to, you know, if we can jump 20 years into the future, or hopefully it won't take that long, we are going to have 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 100,000 members in Shield Mutual or in allied uh, mutual aid or defense agencies. And these people are all going to be carrying identification cards that say that they're covered. They're going to have hats, T-shirts, buttons, and other swag that say that they're covered. And when people go to something like the Smokedown um, Prohibition event where Adam was arrested, and, you know, you could have 50 marshals or park rangers like you had there, but when everyone has these badges on, they're going to they're going to see that there is a unified force here um that people are unified and ready to fight back nonviolently of course and they're going to be intimidated by this because frankly uh looking at what happened with Adam we intimidated them in a good way but we intimidated them that's why they let him go yeah you know cockroaches can get a lot done when the lights are off but when the <laughs> lights come on they have a tendency to scurry back and cover themselves Yes. And so I, I think this, you know, what happened with Adam really validates our long-term strategy, which is to make ourselves, liberty activists, more trouble than we are worth. Um, because to have a felony like that dropped against Adam uh, in just the space of a few days, um, that is absolutely unprecedented. Yeah, they just don't do that that often. They don't do it. And, uh, you know, they, these folks, they pay attention because I, I, in 2010, I was arrested in that same area and I was processed through that courthouse and I went into that same uh, courthouse uh, for my preliminary hearing. And I, I was treated a little bit differently um, there. But, uh, but I know that the marshals who arrested me were reading my blog where I was videotaping, um, you know, I was videotaping Julian Heichlin and Jim Babb handing out jury nullification pamphlets at federal courthouses. And I know, and I was recording videos and posting them, and I know they were they were viewing those. And I know that there were lots of people inside the court system that were uh, reading the FreeAdam.net website. And I know that they saw how aggressive our press releases were. I know that they suffered from the call flood on Monday. 
I, I just know that. I've seen so much evidence of it. And I know that they were intimidated by the fact that we could raise $6,000 to hire the top civil rights attorney in Philadelphia uh, in just 11 hours flat. Um, so, and given the, uh, that it's so unprecedented, I mean, I, I don't have secret recordings from the prosecutor's office, but the only reasonable conclusion is they saw how unified we are, they saw our strength, and they decided to back off. Yeah, and you know, as we have victories like this, exactly, and this, I mean, how can you call this anything other than a major victory in the liberty movement? But when we have a victory like this, uh, you know, there's a lot of professionals, attorneys, and and other professionals in other fields who see things like this. And you know, in the past, maybe they didn't really, they didn't want to take the risk of getting involved, or maybe they didn't really see the kind of ground. Uh, ground level support that that the movement has, and maybe they were a little quiet, or maybe they held off a little bit. But as time goes on, and as we have more and more victories like this, there are going to be attorneys who have sat on their hands and been quiet, not because they were cowards or not, but because they realized that that the system was too big and too hard to try to fight against. But now they're going to start to see a little at a time that there's something they can do. And there's going to be attorneys that are going to come forward to us, to you, to Shield Mutual, and say, you know, hey, when this starts to happen in Philadelphia, let me know. Or when this starts to happen in Cleveland, let me know. Or if this happens in St. Louis, I'm your man, call me. And Mm -hmm. things like this are going to happen. And this is just a ball rolling down a hill, gaining momentum right now as we speak. It's interesting you should say that because uh, Adam had a public defender assigned to him. And uh, on Thursday, uh, that public defender went to bat for him in a huge way by, um, you know, strenuously contesting uh, the government's probable cause for arresting Adam. It was a probable cause and detention hearing. And uh, frankly, contesting probable cause under those conditions is a little bit unusual. And, uh, you know, I talked to the, the public defender. They actually switched public defenders on him. But I talked to the previous one uh, on Tuesday. And uh, she seemed to be getting really quite excited about the case. Um, and so I, I have to think also, looking at it from these public defenders' point of view, these are people who want to make careers. They want to get hired by, uh, you know, uh, law firms. They're going to pay them lots of money at some point, one way or another, because they're not making a lot as public defenders. Or perhaps they trade in some kind of, you know, social currency like, hey, uh, you know, look, I got this really interesting case or, you know, I, and so they, they, I think it's very possible that they looked at this and they saw, wow, now, now we have a high profile uh, guy to represent. There are all these people behind him. Look at all this uh, stuff they're doing for him. This is a chance for one of us to shine. And so one of the, and so they went in there and they fought it strenuously. And that may be, I don't know yet. But that may be the justification that the judge uses for dropping the felonies or that the prosecutor used for that. You know, I, I got a, a vision in my mind of a, a, from a movie. Are you familiar with a, a movie called uh, Old oh, oh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? No. It, no. it was kind of a corny, uh, corny movie set in the... Uh, Oh, wait, with George Clooney? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a scene near the end where the uh, the guys in the movie are on stage and they're playing some music and they're singing their little song and and it and the uh, their identity is revealed and it's a moment when they could easily be arrested and taken into captivity and possibly face pretty horrible punishment. But the the dirtball governor sees the opportunity to play off of the you know the the current wave of emotion that's taken place and so he jumps to their defense immediately pardons them and embraces them you know and and it's not that the dirtball governor's such a great guy it's that that's what politicians do mm-hmm. and if we can save somebody from a long jail term an unnecessary jail term by getting whether it's an honest uh, attorney who wants to make, you know, that wants to do good, and so they're in a defense uh, office like that, or if they're an honest attorney in a practice that says, you know what, I can donate a few hours to this cause, or if they're a slimeball politician that just cares about their own career, it doesn't matter um, how we win the victory, but 
as long as we keep winning, you know? Yes. You know, these, um, I mean, all these people in the court system are just human beings. I mean, sometimes uh, libertarians refer to the state, you know, uh, but the reality is they're just a bunch of people with who want to, you know, earn their money and go home and relax. And they have all the same failings as any other uh, human being. And what's more, these people are muzzled. They cannot do what we do. They cannot issue press releases. They cannot go out there and say that Adam was framed, which was true. They can't go out there and raise money. They can't make a fuss. They're, they have to be quiet. And public relations, um, you know, I, I was always skeptical of public relations. I didn't train in public relations. I'm a historian, you know, from uh, University of Chicago. I mean, I'm an academic. But I have to say public relations are more powerful than politics and government. And we proved it this week because I think public relations really won out. We won the, the appearance. You know, we, we – how do I say it? We – we, we won the debate. I yep. mean, you know, we, sh- we, we said, we came right out. We weren't afraid, and we said, Adam was framed, and there's video evidence, and we're going to come to his aid. And Adam is a good guy. He's an upstanding Marine. And look, it's not just a bunch of words. It's $6,000 in 11 <laughs> hours. And we won that. And they, you know, and the, they have their guns, and they have their billy clubs, and their, their handcuffs, and their cages. But in the end... When we have the courage, the raw courage, and the leadership to organize and to speak out and to make things happen, we are stronger. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. You know, and you touched on something that's critically important. I think, I think we overlook it so often um, that we're not dealing with a collective. We're dealing with individuals. We have, to, we have to get this collective mentality out of our heads. It's been beat into us since childhood by public schools and by television and by movies and everything. We can't see the state or we can't see the government as being this, this blob that we're fighting against. We have to realize that there are um, a multitude of individuals, all with individual problems, individual priorities, indiv- individual fears, and 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 that's what we're dealing with: individual activity. Every single person that works for government is an individual person, just like us. And many of them either don't realize uh, the evils of what they're doing, what their actions do. Or they're stuck in a situation where they're afraid to stand up and do anything about it because they know their whole livelihood depends on it. How would they feed their families? What about their invalid mother? I mean, whatever's going through their mind, it prevents many of them from standing up and doing what they know is right. Yes. Yes, I totally agree. In uh, 2010, when I was processed through that same prison, I remember one of the U.S. Marshals uh, uh, commented to me that he didn't really know much about libertarians and he was wondering if he was one, that he had been a Democrat all his life, but that he was going to look it up and see if maybe he was a libertarian. But, uh, you know, I think also with inside, you know, inside the state, you know, as some libertarians put it, there are many different competing interests. Um, you know, it's, it's not even, it's by in no sense of the word is it a monolith. Because look at, um, you know, if my theory about the public defender is correct, we managed, you know, as a community, as an alliance behind Adam, to get a public defender to conflict with a judge and a prosecutor. And, uh, and that's kind of like, you know, making them fight each other. And, you know, they're fighting each other while we're here growing. And another thing, this wasn't any softy judge or, you know, softy uh, prosecutor. The first public defender of Adam's, Uh, I spoke to her for 30 minutes on the phone Tuesday morning, and she said, the judge is extremely hard-nosed, and the prosecutor is also very hard-nosed, and he's the guy that they pull out for all these protest cases. Um, So, I mean, that that should only magnify the victory. Wow, you guys were going up against the A-team. We really were, at least according to this, this public defender. Hey, I need to break here for a commercial. Would you, uh, mm-hmm. would you like to come back for the second uh, part of this? Sure, that would be my pleasure. Okay, folks, stick, stick with us through a commercial. I'll be right back in about 30 seconds with more with George Donnelly, today's guest. BadQuaker.com uses HostGator as our web hosting service. 
It was fast and easy to set up, and the support we receive is top-notch. They have a helpful and friendly 24-7, 365 live technical support and a 99.9% .9 uptime guarantee. And they have some of the best prices in the business. If you have a website or if you want to have a website, check them out by going to badquaker.com first. Click the button for HostGator. And thank you for supporting badquaker.com. Thanks for sticking with us through the commercial. And Ben Stone back with George Donnelly on the Bad Quaker podcast. And um, George, let's talk about your you, about your podcast a little bit, and then we'll get back to uh, Shield Mutual and what's going on with Adam. Uh, your podcast is called The Art of Liberty. Oh, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah, that's right. The Art of Liberty. And yes. you guys recorded on Monday night and published Tuesday, right? Yeah, John Tyner and I uh, record Monday mornings, and then you know we release uh, hopefully every Tuesday. The, this past week, I was a little bit late because of uh, you know the work for Adam. What kind of topics do you guys talk about? Well, so far we've talked about, uh, let's see, Bitcoin, the Boston lockdown, um, the military, uh, libertarian parenting. And, um, you know, so basically we're focused on constructive ways to um, move forward liberty in your own life right now, as well as kind of a market anarchist thing about how uh, the stateless society might function. And our most popular episode so far has been the libertarian parenting one. That's always a real popular topic I've found. I think a lot of people have a real desire uh, to find out more about that because it's – well, it's such a critical topic anyway. It is, and, and parenting is never hard. You know, I'm, I'm the dad of uh, – my, my son is seven years old now, and um, it, you know, it's a daily thrill and a daily challenge, I have to say. Yeah, my kids uh, are all adults now, and mm -hmm. uh, we're very happy. They're very successful, and we, we like watching them. Um, two of them are hardcore anarchists, and one of them – is kind of uh, just trying to make a living and not really get involved in any way, but but uh -huh. that's okay because I was like that for years. You know, there was sure, years me that too. You just have to try to make a living, and you got little kids in the house, and you think, well, I I'll I'll speak up tomorrow. Today, I just need to go to work. That's totally understandable. I mean, you got to survive before you can, um, you know, really do anything else, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you should do an episode on libertarian grandparenting. Hey, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have uh, one grandchild, uh, since I, you know, I get, have the opportunity to brag. So I have uh, one grandchild that was born last December, and so we're watching him grow super fast. Thank you, thank you. I, I remember when my son was really small. It's you know, it's such a special time. It really, really is. every really every moment is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, what kind of stuff is going on at georgedonnelly.com? Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm writing again. Uh, I wrote an article about, uh, the Boston lockdown. Um, I think it was called, uh, Boston tried a police state and it failed. It was read, uh, more than 55,000 times. It received 18,000 Facebook likes. So that, that went over pretty well. And, uh, I'm doing a, uh, now a video podcast. It's, uh, limited to two minutes, strictly limited. You know, I mean, you're on YouTube, you always see libertarians droning on and on for hours. So, so this one's two minutes or less. It's called Liberty Talking Points. And I, I released that on my blog as well. And of course, I keep, you know, I'm just writing and writing, writing about all the stuff I write. And uh, I'm also working on writing, uh, a science fiction novel as well. Oh, cool. Uh, when you get that finished, let me know, and we'll uh, do everything we can over here at Bad Quaker to uh, to publicize it. Oh well, thank you, thank you, Ben. I, I hope to have it ready no later than the end of June. I'm I'm in a pretty advanced state. I've got a really good outline and uh, should be able to, you know. But of course, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to writing. So I, I've gone over the outline at least eight times now, and uh, I'm sure that the, you know once I actually write it, you know, I mean the outline is already like 200 pages long. So once I write it, I'm sure I'll, have, I'll go through three or four drafts as well. So it could still be a while. <laughs> On the topic of the Boston thing, you know, uh, in, in one way, there's no way you can look at it as anything other than a series of horrible, horrible, tragic uh, situations with just nothing positive in that whole mess. It's just almost makes you want to cry just thinking about the whole thing. But at the same time, there was this... I, I hate to be, I don't know, maybe macabre, 
but there was this comedic thing happening with these Keystone cops running around, you know, uh, acting the way they did. And then once they give up, once they stop and they, they basically acknowledge that they've let the guy slip away Mm. and then bam, right there, the guy is, he was like three blocks away from him the whole time. Yeah, that was, yeah. Keystone cops is the right word. I was, um, I was, I was kind of actually relieved that they didn't catch him because if they had caught him, um, that would be everyone right there. We tried a police state and it worked. Yeah, it would have justified (laughs) them. You know, I I wanted him caught as much as anybody else, but to see that kind of, you know, militarization and shutdown of a major U.S. city, um, that that was really distressing for me personally. Um, I I know it was for others as well. Yeah, it was very upsetting. I uh, I was absolutely furious. I mean, I, that I can't think of a better way to state it. I was furious that I, I wasn't surprised that they would act that way. I realize eventually we're going to see more and more of that. But I was furious that they had the audacity to do that in Boston of all places. And I was furious that the people of Boston – you know, and and this is not this is a knee jerk reaction. It's not necessarily the correct action, but I was furious that the people of Boston tolerated that. Yeah, and you know, well, what could they really have done? I mean, if they would have taken up arms and and tried to be like seventeen seventy six all over again or whatever, they just would have died. You know, they they yeah. they, they just would have cut them down. So, yeah. you know, I, my maybe some of my anger towards the people of Boston and Watertown was unjustified, but that that's what I felt at the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame them for cooperating at the moment, you know, because, uh, you know, some of those videos you see uh, a dozen guys uh, highly armed and they're all pointing their guns at you and they're like, get out, get out, get your hands up, you know. So um, I might have co- cooperated then too, you know, because I don't want to die. Um, but at the same time, to cheer them afterwards and to make excuses for it afterwards and to even say that they're heroes, I mean – Ugh, you know, yeah. I want to vomit. They're heroes. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. But at the same time, uh, you know, and something you said a little bit earlier, I think there were some good points there because, um, for example, there were some heroes at the moment of the explosion who uh, ran right into where the explosion happened and started ripping down barricades and uh, helping people. And there was one gentleman in particular that I saw a photo of uh, who a man who um, you know ex- tragically lost his legs? Um, the gentleman was holding his like his femoral artery uh, so that he wouldn't bleed out. You know, I mean that was <laughs> uh, there are no words for that, and that was pure heroism. And that to me is uh, buttresses a lot of the things that we libertarians say that people are inherently good. The good are many, many more than the bad. And you can count on people, individual people, in a crisis to respond constructively, help each other. And, uh, you know, frankly, I think that the, the uh, civilians in this whole thing were so much more helpful than the people in uniform. Yeah, you really see that not only in that situation, but very often in, in, in disasters like that. I'm thinking of what happened in Oklahoma recently with the tornadoes and so forth. Um, people have a natural tendency – to rush in to help their friends, neighbors, or strangers. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. a part of human nature to be uh, to be empathetic. To yes. uh, you know, it's something that sets us apart. I, I do a lot of watching of birds and squirrels and animals around the yard, and, and I feed them all and watch them and watch their. I try to study their nature and see how they behave. Uh-huh. And uh, to a large degree, you see one little sparrow there, and you can see that it age or or disease or whatever has really got it down, and it's really struggling to eat and uh, and move around. And the other sparrows could care less. It mm. it falls over. It can't feed itself. They don't even notice it. They'll walk right by it. Eventually, if you stay out of the situation long enough, that sparrow dies, and the others might actually come up and pick at it and 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 wow. eat the softer parts of it uh in the in right in the immediate aftermath before the ants and so forth yeah. get to it and um and and then you think of humans and you do not see that type of behavior 
in humans. And there's other animals too. You know, uh, it's been shown with with elephants that when an elephant dies, the other elephants will come back even years later to the spot where that elephant fell, and they'll stand really? there and sway and sort of mourn for the loss wow. of that elephant. So, wow. so it's not something necessarily that's entirely unique to humans, but it is certainly something that is within uh, our species that is natural to us to, you know, it, some people say, well, you're going down the freeway and you see a horrible accident and you, and you can't help yourself. You have to look, but, and, and they generally, we think of that as bad, but I mm-hmm. think the core root of that is mm-hmm. the desire to want to help the desire yeah. to say, is everything okay? You know? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, we really are wired to be empathetic. Um, there are people among us who, who will do bad things in a crisis, but I mean, the evidence is all around us. And th- this is one problem I have with, with government. I mean, some, some libertarians will make the argument, well, a government is a suck on the economy. Government uh, costs too much. They waste our money. And um, for me, that's kind of like a right libertarian conservative argument. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't really, I don't find that it's very useful. But when I see that the government doesn't let us do what we, what we would do naturally, which is to help each other, that, that really resonates with me as an argument for why government should be limited. That they get in the way of our own you know, natural empathetic bonds of helping each other. For example, when cities pass ordinance, ordinances banning people from feeding the homeless. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be a waste, that can be anything, but the, the only reason that resonates with me emotionally, and that most people are very emotional, I mean, we are emotional creatures mostly, is that it doesn't let me do what my heart tells me to do, which is to help other people. Uh, and I, I think that's so much more persuasive than all the economic arguments that, that some folks make. Yeah, and you know, you see this with uh, uh, anybody who goes back and studies like the 1800s and so forth, and when the progressive movement began taking over the different charities and, uh, and, and government began doing those things forcibly rather than allowing the, the, the charities to, to continue, you know, it, it's a heartbreaking thing. Um, I'm thinking of here locally, I live near the city of Dayton, Ohio. And in the old downtown section of Dayton, Ohio, much of it was built by a, a group of German immigrants that came right into that area. And they had these beer halls just every few blocks. <laughs> and we think of that today and we're like, oh, it's a bar, right? But it really wasn't. Their beer halls were uh, social gathering places where, you know, during the day, and this may sound a little sexist to us today, but uh, during the daytime, the women uh, would go down there. And they would get together and they would find out, well, so-and-so is sick, so let's go you know, make them food and take it to them. Or so-and-so is unemployed, mm-hmm. let's go and see if we can get a, a blanket to them or whatever. And, and then in the evenings, when the men would get off work out of the factories, they would go there and they would also socialize too. And I'm, I'm sure there was beer drinking. I mean, they were Germans and it was a beer hall, you know. But, um, <laughs> but at the same time... Um, the, the primary purpose of these beer halls was to bring the community together and to, and to maintain that feeling of community. And of course, you know, the state crushed that, uh, uh, by bringing in, uh, prohibition and closing mm-hmm. all those beer halls down. Interesting. So it's kind of like the, the Facebook or the chat room of the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. <laughs> It's amazing to rediscover all that, um, you know, all that of our past. Uh, and you kind of start to understand, for me at least, old people and their, their kind of very social and familiar nature, you know, that I growing up in the 1970s and 80s, I was, it was like, you know, what's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more modern, I'm, I'm, you know, but I, I kind of got a glimpse of that, you know, that whole, what, you know, the ecosystem of, you know, people helping each other out directly. And for me, it was kind of alien a little bit growing up at that time. But it's so fascinating to rediscover how, you know, mutual aid and how, you know, direct help to, to each other used to work. And it's, it's totally it's so absent from our world today. 
that it really does seem strange and alien and it seems like, oh, you know, that can't possibly do any good. You know, it's just a bunch of people sitting around drinking beer, you know. Uh, I'm sure many people would have that reaction today. Um, but, but, you know, it, it makes sense that it had a big impact back then. Yeah, it, it really did. And, uh, and you know, if you, if you contrast that to, I don't know how many of our listeners have actually gone into somewhere like a welfare office or a social security office or whatever. My, my, I have a neighbor that's quite elderly and, uh, he had some issues with, uh, with the social security office, uh, here locally. So he had to go down there and, you know, he goes in and they actually have a security guard standing there right at the door as you walk in. And this is the most harmless area, you know, that you can think of. There's, there's not going to be anything that needs a security officer at a social security office, you know, in this area, but, Mm -hmm. but he's there as a intimidation force when you first walk in. And so my neighbor had to get past him and then you have to go and you have to get the right forms and you have to sign up on the right paper and you have to get in the right line and you have to notify him you're there. And then you wait for your name to be called. And my neighbor was telling me all about all this. And during this time, he started feeling really, really cold and he knew something was happening to him, but he didn't really know what it was that was happening. And he started getting really confused. And the people in the social security office, um, started yelling at him and uh, basically he he didn't know what was going on with himself they didn't care they just realized that he wasn't you know functioning properly they maybe thought he was drunk or whatever and they essentially threw him out of the office not physically but essentially that's what they did and Mm -hmm. so he being a vietnam veteran he uh, uh got in his pickup truck and drove to the veterans hospital which means he had to drive across some of the worst traffic in this immediate area, mm-hmm. uh, which is terrifying. If you think about it, he's already having some kind of chills and confusion and he's in a government office and they kick him out, you know? Yeah. So he gets to the, to the veterans uh, hospital and, uh, and they essentially ignore him. He's wandering around in a daze. He's fallen down a couple times in the hospital and they're still ignoring him. Oh. And eventually one of the people there who was like a volunteer type aide type person uh, got him, picked him up, got him over to a desk, got him logged in and got him to a, a doctor that they could see him. And he was having uh, some kind of a seizure. He, I can't remember the wording that he used, but um, it could have been a very fatal situation for him, especially driving across town like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there was just this callous approach to him like he's just another old man, you know. Um, they, 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 it was, it was, he, the way he described it to me was dehumanizing. He, he felt like the only thing at the hospital they cared about was whether or not he was signed up to get his money from, uh, um, from the agent orange, uh, exposure. And he was trying to tell him, look, you know, that's not the problem. That's not why I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. Help me. (laughs) And, Uh and all they wanted to do was talk about him, uh, talk to him about his paperwork for agent orange. Like, like the only reason he's there is for, you know, for money or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my grandfather is, or was a a world war two veteran and he, um, saw a lot of extreme poverty in his last 20 years or so. And he was getting treated, you know, for all kinds of ailments by the the VA, and was never treated very well. Uh, I, I I really, you know, I'm kind of afraid for what old people are are seeing today. I saw, you know, some of the treatment he got, and uh, it's it was really tragic. I mean, you know, I th- I think our our modern society has really been eviscerated by this whole movement to. Uh, kind of like a like a technocracy. Uh, technocracy. I'm not sure if that's what the word, but kind of like focusing on technology and bureaucracy and systems for everything. Instead of and and so the human element has very quickly been kind of bred out of society. Uh, you know, I, I one of the reasons I left the United States was because I, I just felt like there was nobody who really cared about anybody. And uh, you know, luckily I, I found that in Colombia. Colombia where I live, where people are very warm and they care about each other. And it's, it hasn't reached that stage where, um, you know, everybody interacts through the bureaucracy and there's lots of paperwork and, you know, people will say, you know, F you to your face and uh, people will just not care. 
Um, and I, I kind of, you know, more, more even sometimes more even than the, the the liberty and tyranny thing. I would just worry about the the personal bonds between people. And actually, I, I, I see that a lot in the liberty community. I think you know that's that's something we really need to work on first on recovering our empathy for each other and our ability to be um, understanding and respectful and get rid of all the the ridicule and the ad hominem. And, um, you know, one of my inspirations on that count has been um, uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, um, Gandhi's Satyagraha. Um, and also uh, I've been doing um, Aikido and meditation lately, which, um, you know, I found really inspirational in those counts. Uh, George, uh, I need to break again here for another commercial. Uh, can you stick with me for a little bit longer after this commercial? Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure, Ben. Okay, folks, stick with us. 30 seconds. I'll be right back with George Donnelly. How would you like to do something to support BadQuaker.com? Here's how easy it is. If you're already going to buy something from Amazon, go to BadQuaker.com first. Click on any of the buttons for Amazon. Once at Amazon, shop like you normally would. You'll pay the same price for the things you buy from Amazon, but Amazon will give BadQuaker.com a tiny portion of that purchase. It's amazingly easy to shop at Amazon. It won't cost you any extra, and you'll be supporting BadQuaker.com. Thank you. And it's been stoned back again with George Donnelly on the Bad Quaker podcast. Uh, George, right before the break, you had mentioned uh, Gandhi and some other names there. Um, can you talk a little bit, because I've read some of your stuff. So one, one thing you wrote just here recently about Gandhi and uh, could you talk a little bit about the difference between peaceful activism and and non-peaceful activism? Sure. Um, yeah, the word that I mentioned before is satyagraha, which is um, a word that Gandhi himself invented. It means uh, truth force or soul force. And um, basically, even, even if you take um, peaceful activism – that could be construed just as a like using nonviolence as a tactic or yeah tactical nonviolence, whereas satyagraha goes much farther. And I think this this will help illustrate the difference between peaceful and uh, not so peaceful activism. The idea become, behind uh, satyagraha, or I'll just call it um, truth force, uh, which is the literal translation, is that when there is an injustice. We're going to use not the force of guns or, or lead or gunpowder or anything like that or our fists or anything. We're going to use the force of our truth and our raw determination to see that truth recognized. So we're going to go to the people who are committing the injustice and we're going to present our case in a very well-documented way, in a very uh, ela- well-elaborated, well-articulated way with complete courage with no fear, or at least as little fear as we can possibly um, muster. And we're not going to back down. So it's not passive. You know, some people think uh, Gandhi, oh, that's passive resistance. Well, that's not, I don't like that word. I don't think it's uh, accurate. This is active resistance, but it's not using violence. Uh, We're going to prosecute our complaint to this oppressor, you know, in whatever way it takes. So, for example... Uh, it could take the form of a sit-in. It could take the form of a boycott. It could take the form of education. In some cases, uh, Gandhi wanted to get into somewhere, and he went right up, and the guards, uh, he had hundreds of people with him, and they quietly and um, respectfully, without saying a word really, they went right up to the gate, and they were smacked down with uh, batons. And they did this over and over and over again. And uh, that's distasteful, but the fact is that um, there is a limit on how much uh, aggression an, uh, one individual can use on another in a face-to-face situation. And so what you're doing is you're, you're tiring out your, the aggressor or the oppressor. You're showing them your raw determination that you will not be intimidated by them and you will not give up. And um, you're also evoking a little bit of sympathy, perhaps in the press or whatnot, because it's a very David and Goliath kind of situation. And so, and all satyagraha or, or truth force um, proceeds from a position of love. 
This can also be hard for, for some libertarians because they say that they hate the state. I hate the state. That, that always, that, that's kind of like a red flag for me because um, really I think to be effective, nonviolence has to proceed from that state of love. We have to say to ourselves that this is just another individual human being like me with their own set of problems, with their own perspective on things that I might not understand. And so I have to approach them from a place of love. And things like ridicule, uh, insults, uh, violence, and um, you know anything like that is not helping me because it scares. It scares the person or it turns them off to us. And uh, it's very essential in these kinds of things to show that we are the better people. We are the more moral people, or we're at least as moral and, and good and kind and uh, formal and polite as they are. Uh, I, I don't know if that, if that helped answer your question at all. Oh, oh that was perfect. Um, I'll throw in, since we're talking about Gandhi, I'll throw in a, a, an example here in North America. In the 1600s, there was an ongoing clash between the Quakers and the Puritans, and this bled over from England because a similar cl- clash was going on in England. and. Uh, in different places in Europe, and mm-hmm. the uh, the Puritans had a tendency to be in control of go- of government. That's what they wanted. That's what they liked. And when they weren't in control of government, they would take violent, aggressive action to become in control of government because that's part of the uh, part of their theology. Interesting. Whereas the Quakers, you know, are legendary as being pacifists. Uh, I'm not a pacifist, but but Quakers typically are pa- pacifists. And so the the Puritans in New England had these rules. You had to dress a certain way. You had to speak certain ways. Um, you had to use certain language when you spoke to someone in authority. You had to use titles. You had to bow your head. You had to tip your hat. If you mm-hmm. were a female, you had to you know slightly uh, hunker down and curtsy uh, to to certain authorities and so forth. And all of this was contrary to what Quakers believed. Quakers believed that all men were equal, that there was no human being that could lord over another human being, and no human being deserved any kind of magic titles, and no human being had any kind of authority that we should have to adjust our attire in some way or bow or do any kind of magic uh, behavior to acknowledge their greatness. I love that part of Quakerism. I just love it. I feel exactly the same way. So the uh, the Puritans, of course, didn't like this because if one or two people don't follow along, then the rest of the people start saying, hmm, that's an interesting <laughs> thing there, you know? It's the kind of thing that catches on. <laughs> and so they couldn't tolerate that. Oh, the other thing was uh, Pur- uh, Puritans made a really big thing about Sunday, uh, you know, going to Sunday worship at the at the Puritan church. And financially supporting the Puritan church, of course. They didn't mm. call it tax, but that's what it was. And the Quakers didn't see one day as being different from another, and they certainly didn't want to take their money and pay for the for the Puritan churches. Right. So, you know, the, so we kind of have the same, in a little bit different, we kind of have the same uh, problems nowadays between those who want to lord over us and those uh, who just wish to be left alone. Right. But the Puritans responded to this by uh, publicly beating the Quakers, and uh, by uh, they would actually, uh, because the, some of the Quaker women wouldn't dress the way that the uh, uh, Puritans wanted them to dress, so in order to humiliate the Quaker women, they stripped them naked, tied oh. them to the back of a, uh, of a wagon, and would parade them around town to humiliate them to try to get oh. the Quaker women to, you know, to dress properly in uh, Puritan attire. Oh, jeez. So the Quaker response to that in New England was they they kind of schemed this out, and on a particular Sunday they all agreed to do this, and they just swarmed into the Puritan churches like they were supposed to on Sunday morning, but they went in bare naked. Ha! <laughs> That's great. And and they did so saying, essentially, here we are. You want to humiliate us? We have just taken away your weapons. We uh-huh. have. You want us to come to church? We just took away your weapons. You want to beat us? We just took away your weapon. That's brilliant. And if That's, you, that takes some guts. <laughs> and if you look around today, there are remnants of uh, uh, of Puritan. Well, there's a lot of remnants of Puritan thought. 
uh, and there's remnants of Puritan churches, but most most of the time you don't actually see people calling themselves Puritans. But they're about the same number of Quakers today as there were in the 1600s. Mm. Just kind of an off thought there. Yeah, yeah. One thing, I, I get the sense, I don't know, you can tell me if this is right or not, that Quakers are, well, yeah, I mean, you even said it, they're more passive. And I would say, and some people I think confuse, I mean, at least in some kind of, um, uh, you know, a conflict with an oppressor. But uh, from the Gandhian point of view, I mean, at least the Gandhian approach is, is, is to not use violence, but it's to be very active, you know, very much in the oppressor's face uh, kind of a thing. Although with love, you know, no ridicule and whatnot. And just to kind of proceed boldly forward as if they weren't there. And if they're going to lash out and whatnot, to take that, I mean, not, not to defend yourself, to just take that and then, you know, keep trying again and again and again. Um, so, and I think some people in the liberty community, when I've brought up these, um, you know, uh, truth force, they think it's passive. And uh, another quick comment on that, on something that I found curious with, and also respect to Adam Kokesh, is that uh, when I used to bring up, uh, you know, Gandhian nonviolence, in the past, some people would always be like, always be like they, they would make suggestions about using violence. You know, it's the only way or it's the only thing that works or whatever. And it's kind of funny because now that Adam Kokesh is out there saying that we have to march on uh, federal and state capitals with uh, our loaded rifles, some of those same people are saying, oh, no, but we have to be nonviolent. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just so cracked me up. It's it's um you know it's one of the interesting things to come out of Adam's march that it's it's so interesting to see how people react. You know it's it's like they show their true colors, and in in this case, you know if people are saying no, but we, we really we really do have to do take the nonviolent way. Well, that's to me that's encouraging. That that is one encouraging piece of news. Yeah, and uh, I can't let this slip by without saying something about it too. You know, I've seen this over and over and over, the statements, something along the lines of, well, if you're not going to come out and do this, meaning march and and do the things that Adam is uh, suggesting, if you're not doing that, then you're not doing anything. You're just sitting on your couch eating Cheetos or whatever. And this is a false dichotomy that's that's not helpful to us at all. Yeah, uh, we, there's a variety of different ways that we can approach this situation, and to narrow it down to a you're either with us or against us, you're either doing what we're doing or you're doing nothing. That's really unfair, and it's not very educated either. Yeah, now Adam actually said that in the um, press release that he issued from prison um, yesterday afternoon, um, and I think. Um, and I'm not actually a, a, a in favor of Adam's march, uh, although I have to say I I admire and I want to encourage his ballsiness. You know, there are a lot of people who talk and do nothing, um, and they're talking. I mean, I don't want to talk down talking. Talking is also important, but they they don't really do anything uh, to to buttress their beliefs, and they continue living the same kind of life that people in the status system do. And uh, so, I, so when somebody gets out there and does something dramatic like he's doing, I, I can't help but say, like, good job, you know, even though I think it's, it's a little bit misguided. Uh, it's not compatible with my philosophy. Uh, and he, in his statement, he says that the time for nonviolent uh, revolution has, has passed, and uh, it hasn't even been tried yet. Right. Yeah. So by no means, um, you know, am I uh, like a big fan of, of his idea as a person. I, I support him and whatnot, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not behind this this march thing at all. And and this is a good time to take it back to Shield Mutual too, uh, especially since we're on the radio in some places, we're on the LRN, and we're in other places where some listeners are going to come in later than other listeners. So. Um, let's get this back to Shield Mutual for a moment. Now, you did this tremendous work with Shield Mutual, and it is not really associated with Adam's um, stated goals about this march with Washington and Arm March and so forth like that. The two things are entirely detached from one another. You, uh, with Shield Mutual, came to Adam's defense because he was doing something entirely peaceful and actually legal, 
uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that he was just standing there with a microphone talking. He was not in possession of any forbidden materials. He was not even accused of that, as far as I know. And um, and he was tackled and arrested uh, simply for talking into a microphone. Right. And then he was held um, for some time there. He was held with no communications whatsoever. We didn't know what That's was right. going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shield Mutual, because Adam was a customer, Shield Mutual flew into action, arranged uh, 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 telephone calls, arranged people to show up and protest, um, started take, uh, taking donations, uh, set up a website, and you guys were on it. I mean, you guys were really on it, but it had nothing to do with uh, with the DC march, it was everything to do with the fact that someone was snatched out of a crowd unjustly and uh, for no reason other than he was a political prisoner. That's right. Yeah, um, we didn't do quite all those things that you mentioned, um, and uh, I definitely still want to uh, emphasize there was a big alliance of people that got behind Adam, and I, I just played a, a one role there. But uh, yeah, I want to say I want to something I've noticed that people sometimes say they say. Um, well, I don't like that guy, and so, or I don't like what he he did, and so he should he should definitely rot in prison, you know. And uh, that's you know, it's like when we say, well, I think we should reduce the state, except for we should keep doing social security, or we should keep national defense. And when everybody puts together all their exceptions to liberty, <laughs> that's what we get when we have. That's what we get now. That's what we have now. That's what we get. And so um, any customer of mine, anybody's welcome to sign up. I don't care if you're a plumb line libertarian or a statist. Uh, if you are a victim of government aggression, I am going to come to your support. Or it doesn't even have to be government aggression. You could be a victim of, of your neighbor's aggression. Agra, Agra, oh, sorry, um, Shield Mutual is the Agra's first defense agency. And we don't defend you with guns or armed patrols, not yet at least. But we do defend you with public relations and with fundraising and all that, all that leadership stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, if Adam Kokesh is in trouble and he is our customer, we're going to come to his aid. And if uh, Barack Obama is our customer and somebody attacks him, well, you know what? We're going to come to his aid too. But it doesn't mean that we necessarily support everything each individual does. And I think it's absolutely essential that we recognize that we can't make exceptions to our principles just because we have an, an emotional problem with, um, with an individual person or a group. You know, it's like when people say, well, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, on immigration, I, I, I like those Indian people and I like the Asians. They're nice. But those Mexicans, we got to send them back, you know. Uh, sorry, you know, that doesn't work that way. Either you accept the principle of, uh, you know, free travel, you know, the right to travel freely, or you don't. See, one way or the other, right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, George, I'm so happy that we were able to talk today, and I'm so happy you came on the show with me. Um, we we waited too long between uh, between you showing up on the show. Maybe we can uh, fix that problem next time around. Ben, it has been my great pleasure, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And I value our interactions uh, here and on Facebook as well. And I, I think you're you're a pretty swell guy, Ben. Thanks. I appreciate coming from you, George. That really means a lot to me. And folks, once again, you can find George Donnelly at georgedonnelly.com, G-E-O-R-G-E-D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y.com. And you can listen to his The Art of Liberty podcast Tuesdays. If you go over to georgedonnelly.com, there's a button right there. Or you can go to georgedonnelly.com, I think it's slash Slash podcast. Yeah, slash podcast. Mm -hmm. And you can find Shield Mutual. Well, actually, you can find links to all this stuff in today's show notes. I'll have links to all that. Uh, But Shield Mutual is just shieldmutual.com, right? Yes, that's right, Ben. Okay. Um, George, once again, thanks for coming on the show with me. And thank Thank you you, for your hard work and everything that you're doing. And you take care of yourself down there. Uh, I would love someday to see Colombia. It's just, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated by that area of the world. Then um, you should come down. We have a spare room. We regularly host uh, guests here, and we'll show you all around. It's it's really a beautiful area. What's the driving like going to to actually drive, say, from the U.S. down there? Uh, no, you can't. You can't. You get to the south of Panama, and then you run into the Darien Gap, which is pure jungle. 
Mm. So you would, yeah, you have to take, if you want to come over land, you have to take a boat from Panama to uh, perhaps Cartagena and then come over land again. Is there anything like, uh, uh, what are those boats called that carry cars? Uh, uh, like a ferry? Yeah, is there any ferries? No, no, this is like primitive at the uh, Daring Gap. It's like little wooden canoes. Uh, I was hoping yeah. I could get my motorhome down there. If I could get my motorhome down there, I'd never come back. <laughs> well, if you can figure it out, uh, you know, you're welcome uh, to stay with us as long as you like. George, We'll thank- figure out a place to park it for you. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, and thanks a lot for everything you do, George. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. I, your podcast is really something special. Thanks. And folks, thanks for listening to today's show. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks. 